Welcome to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. On today's Project Censored Show, we recognize Media Literacy Week. That's the week of October 24th in the United States. But at Project Censored, we celebrate critical media literacy. On today's show, we explore the many media literacies as corporations have increasingly co-opted the field. Even NATO is now working with academics in the U.S. on media lit presentations. But not all media literacy is created equal. Our guests are media scholars and authors Allison Butler and Nolan Higdon, experts in critical media literacy, which focuses on interrogating the power behind media narratives. Today on the Project Censored show, Critical Media Literacy Education. Stay with us. Welcome to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. On today's program, we're going to be examining critical media literacy, its significance, and why we need a critical media literacy pedagogy and curricula going across the United States to teach people about media, how it works, who runs it, to what end, how narratives are controlled. Now, this show, of course, also, we've addressed this issue for a long time, Media Literacy Week is actually a thing. It's coming up October 24 to 28, but we're going to be outlining today what the difference between critical media literacy is with acritical and corporate media literacy or mainstreamed media literacy. We're also going to talk about a couple upcoming publications on critical media literacy education for young people. And we'll even talk more specifically about the importance of critical media literacy as it shines a light on technology and the abuse of technology in education. So without further ado, I want to bring in our very special guest today, Dr. Allison Butler. Allison is a senior lecturer, director of undergraduate advising, and the director of the Media Literacy Certificate Program in the Department of Communication at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. She is the author of numerous articles and books on media literacy, including Educating Media Literacy, The Need for Teacher Education in Critical Media Literacy, and Key Scholarship in Media Literacy. Allison Butler is also vice president of the Media Freedom Foundation, which oversees Project Censored. So we could not have had a more fitting guest for today's program. Allison Butler, welcome to the Project Censored show. Thank you so much, Mickey. I'm super excited to be here. There's so much to cover and you cover it all. Let's first remind our listeners, when we talk about critical media literacy, what sets that apart from the kind of media literacy that we see the big tech companies support, and in fact, the stuff that's celebrated during the official Media Literacy Week. But critical media literacy is is actually quite different. Can you talk about that, Allison Butler? Love talking about critical media literacy. I would say, you know, the big term that many folks have probably heard is media literacy, right? That comes to us from a variety of activist and education sources, best codified in the early 1990s as the ability to access, analyze, and produce a variety of media. What's happened since the 2016 election and certainly 
since and during COVID is the idea that the term media literacy has often been co-opted by tech companies, by real right-wing propaganda organizations as a way of serving their own purposes by saying, you know, by, by, by weaponizing or, or diluting, depending on how you want to look at it, that ability to access, analyze, and produce, right? It, it, it can present this narrative of supporting their goals without question, and I'm, I'm happy to give a few examples on that. Critical media literacy, on the other hand, starts with the same thing, that ability to access, analyze, and produce, but stays away from any kind of corporate connection and also looks at the behind the scenes, sort of pulls back the curtain so that we're doing a real deep dive into ownership, production, and distribution. Most of us probably spend our time with our entertainment media or our media of information by looking at a screen or reading text, listening to something. What we're looking at with critical media literacy is how did that get there? Oftentimes, I think, particularly with entertainment media, we think of that body, that person on screen, on the Instagram post, in the social media as being really powerful, right? It's a job. These days, to be a social media influencer is actually a job. And yet, what's happening behind? Who's the owner? Who's the producer? Who's the distributor? How did that content get to us? How are we able to see that? How are we able to hear it? How are we able to read it? So looking at the structures of power behind the scenes and disentangling the behind the scenes from the front of the scenes. And again, as I said before, really staying away from handholding with tech oligarchs or with corporations to critically analyze something. It doesn't mean we need to dislike it and it doesn't mean that we need to turn it off, but it does mean we need to take a bit of distance from it. We need to see these corporations as the multidimensional um behemoths that they are. And we can't do that from inside. In order to see what they are, we have to take a few steps away from them. At no point in critical media literacy, though, are we telling anybody, ourselves, young people, teachers, to turn off their media. Absolutely not. In fact, some might argue, turn it on more so that we can deconstruct it more, so that we can critique it more. Yeah, that's absolutely correct. So, Allison, I know you said a moment ago you didn't want to give too much oxygen to the kind of media literacy that we see during the more mainstreamed or establishment media literacy week. But just to give our listeners some concrete examples, I mean, even one or two, let's talk about what that looks like versus what critical media literacy is and does. Here's an example of something that we're probably going to be hard pressed to take distance from. Google has developed a media literacy curriculum. It's for early childhood education. It is designed in a real sort of gaming way. I fully admit I'm not super good at all at video games, but I went on and I played and I learned how to be internet kind, according to Google. And it's a little video game where you're taking a, a little character and moving them through a series of obstacles. The problem with a Google media literacy curriculum is that at no point does it ever interrogate Google. So you've got one of the absolute most giant companies out there today. It is almost impossible to get through a day without using Google in some capacity that provides a curriculum with zero self-reflection. So this is a case where like the absence of data becomes data. If we don't have to critique Google, 
But we as students or we as teachers or we as children learning how to play this game don't know that we're not critiquing Google. You're being used, much like you don't use social media, it uses you. That's another example of something that's real hard for us to get away from these days. When we are using social media, for the most part, unless we are being paid endorsers, unless we are in fact have the job title of social media influencer, we're providing them with their content. And, you know, Zuckerberg in some ways isn't wrong when he says that Facebook isn't a media content creator. We are. We put posts on Facebook or Instagram. We put our posts on TikTok or Snapchat or whatever, you know, all sorts of things. We post stuff to YouTube. All of that is us doing the labor. And most of us, most of us regular people aren't getting paid for that. I do a little something with my students sometimes when I want to try and get them to dig into this, where I ask them how many of them have jobs, many of them raise their hands, how many of them would be willing at the end of their two-week work period to not get a paycheck, and they all laugh at me like, you know, I'm cuckoo bananas. I'm fine with that. I say, okay, fine. Third question. How many of you would not only be willing to not get a paycheck, but would take money out of your pocket and give it to your boss? And by that point, they're all like looking at me like, where are you going with this lady? Right. But that's what we're doing with, with social media. We are spending a great deal of time and time is a commodity to post only, of course, the best, the most curated pictures, the prettiest, the best lighting, the greatest background, all that kind of good stuff. Cute pictures of our dogs, whatever. Uh, that's time. And then nobody's paying us to do that, but we are paying in, in a way, we are paying with our time because we're not doing something else, right? Like we're taking time away from something else. And all the time that we're doing this and all the time that anybody is on, for example, the Google Media Literacy Curriculum, we are exponentially adding to our digital footprint because we're giving so much data away. Uh, and so when we work inside of a Google or Facebook has a media literacy curriculum, Verizon has a media literacy curriculum, NATO's working on a media literacy curriculum. When we work inside of those, we miss a ton of stuff that is deeply in need of analysis. Yeah, indeed. And it is also the case. I mean, we've talked about these issues on the program before. Um, our friend and colleague Nolan Higdon that you co-author numerous things with and work with as well has addressed these issues and in fact just did a recent piece on on military industrial complex media illiteracy that we might remark upon. Um, but it's also the case that these very companies that you just mentioned, right, and they change their names often so that and they buy each other and we don't know who owns who if we don't pay attention. That's also part of being critically media literate, right, is who owns whom and where's this going, Meta is Facebook, is Instagram, Google is YouTube. Um, uh, we have Trend Micro, we have Twitter, Roblox, Nickelodeon, Thomson Reuters. Wait, what am I doing? Oh, I'm sorry. I'm reading off all of the official corporate sponsors for the National Association for Media Literacy Education, Media Literacy Week. Those are the very companies that you were just basically warning us about these are the ones behind the official media literacy week. So I think now the Project Censored audience is sophisticated enough. I think that they can start to see <laughs> that there is a difference 
between everything that you said, Alison Butler, before and the type of thing that we mistake media literacy for in the more mainstream consciousness. I don't know if consciousness is the right word. I don't know if mainstream is the right word either. But I think that people get an image there. Now, it's also the case that these same folks that design these platforms are the same type of folks that have designed casinos, gambling machines. Social psychologists have, have been utilized, you know, to how to manipulate people and keep them on platforms. I mean, it's all rather insidious, to say the least. Can you comment a little bit on that element of how they keep us on those platforms, even though some of us may know better? This is a conversation I have with my college students all the time. They will talk to me in class or just in conversation about how super frustrating it is to be so distracted by social media, especially by what they do on their phones, the things that are in their pockets, their Instagram and their TikTok. And they will say that it's distracting and they find it very upsetting. It makes them sad, but they can't turn it off. They have to use it for class or they have to use it for their jobs or they have to use it for their own professional development to get jobs because that's where the jobs are. And they have to use it because if they don't, their friends think that they've gone off the deep end, even as their friends are sharing the same concerns. It's like, wait a minute, come on. If you're both concerned about this, you could both stop using social media and still be able to be friends. And I think that speaks volumes to at least two things. One is that they might be called social media. And the same thing that you said about a lot of like the company name changes. You can change a company name. You can name something whatever you want. That doesn't mean it's exactly what it is. Social media can be profoundly isolating. Just staring at your phone or just staring at your screen, walking through the streets with your head down because you're looking at your phone, that's incredibly isolating. That's not social. I see that in my students too, where I walk into my classroom and I have 44 students in one of my classes this semester and they all sit there before I start talking with their heads down on their phones. It tends to be incredibly isolating. Another problem, of course, is that the power is with these companies. We have absolutely, as individuals, we have power. But the bulk of the power is with these companies and with their incredibly sophisticated design, which keeps us on them. I have a PhD in media studies, not in neuroscience, but I'm reading this stuff. It's curious to me. I'm experiencing it, that the chemical release, that dopamine release, that thing that brings us a moment of joy, that's built into the way that these technologies are built. They keep us sticking around. Some of our, maybe not so social media, but for example, our streaming devices, it is super easy these days to just sit on your couch and let whatever show it is you're watching keep going. You don't have to do any work. And it's easy. And we do live in difficult and dark times. And if there is an opportunity to have something that's easy, oh my goodness, how can you not take advantage of that? But the bigger problem, of course, is that if these are the companies that are sponsoring Media Literacy Week, if these are the companies, and by sponsoring, I mean putting money behind it, putting a dollar, putting a hundred dollars, putting a thousand dollars, whatever, they're putting money behind it and way more than that, of course. But even if it is a token amount, it's hard to bite the hands that feed. So it's a lot harder to analyze that which is paying for it. It's a lot harder to analyze that which we are inside of. 
And I think then if we look at it even slightly differently, like certainly I'm invested in critiquing these corporations, but even if I weren't invested in critiquing these corporations, I might be concerned about the fact that a giant corporation co-ops a term like media literacy. What does that mean? For all I know, I'm super naive and it means great things. For all I know, it means fabulous things. I don't think so, but it could. But even before we get inside of it, what does it mean that a giant corporation is trying to utilize this terminology, media literacy? What happens when that gets normalized in a way that invites us to stop asking questions? Well, they want to control that narrative the same way they want to control the narrative on Ukraine, Russia, the corporate media, or any other narrative. And when they become the platforms, when they become the body of the message, and you know, we're basically toiling away in this uh, sort of digital internet plantation, basically addicted to this kind of worldwide web pornography. I mean, in a lot of ways, the social media interactions, the dopamine hits, the not leaving the platforms. I mean, these kind of things are at the root of of serious, not just social maladies, but interpersonal problems, emotional stuntedness, and even to some degree, mental issues. These are interconnected. A hundred percent. And so I think it's very cynical that we see the corporations doing what they're doing and trying to hijack this. And I'll go a step further maybe than you did and not putting words in your mouth, but I think what they're doing is borderline criminal. It's incredibly manipulative and I think it's destroying people's lives. I think that there's actually evidence for that. I know that that's stark terms and I know that that's alarmist rhetoric to some, but I do think that we should take a serious look behind the curtain and I hope our listeners I hope they heard everything you said very clearly because I think you laid out in a short period of time what we're dealing with, what the differences are between critical media literacy and this corporate type media literacy. And I definitely want to continue our conversation. So I just need to remind you, you're listening to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. We are joined by Dr. Allison Butler, Senior Lecturer, Director of Undergraduate Advising and the Director of the Media Literacy Certificate Program in the Department of Communications at the University of Massachusetts Amherst, an experts expert in critical media literacy, author, and many other things. We will continue our conversation with Allison Butler after this brief musical break. Stay with us. Welcome back to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. Today in this program, we have Dr. Allison Butler, Senior Lecturer, Director of Undergraduate Advising, and Director of the Media Literacy Certificate Program at University of Massachusetts Amherst. Allison Butler, you co-authored a couple of pieces with Nolan Higdon, author of The Anatomy of Fake News, among other things. And you have been writing a series of articles. One was picked up by USA Today, of all places, we consider this a big coup at Project Censored, getting inside the machine there. And he wrote a piece, Strangers are spying on your child and schools are paying them to do it. That's behind a paywall at USA Today, but Yahoo News and several other places picked it up. Explain to us what that means and tie this into our conversation about critical media literacy education. Nolan and I have been really bothered by the uptick in surveillance technologies in education which are presented to K through 12 and higher education as tools of convenience, as tools of safety, and as tools of protection. 
And so we've been digging into this in a few different ways. We see a bunch of headlines about data breaches to the point where it's not even news anymore. When a tech company has been breached, it's barely front page news, which is truly horrible. It should be front page news because what is happening with a lot of these technologies that are being brought into classrooms ostensibly to collect student work or be a way to document grades or share information are also much more insidiously capturing all student data. They're capturing teacher data, they're capturing school data, and they're capturing student data. The problem with capturing student data is that for the most part, particularly in K through 12, we're looking at minors. We're looking at people who are under the age of 18 who are not being proactively asked for their consent, nor are their parents being proactively asked for their consent. So the students to be in this classroom are passively providing consent by using the software or using the hardware that is provided. And this is the, a way that the tech companies and the tech oligarchs are getting around minor protected data. It is a loophole, if you will, although loophole implies something small. This is a chasm of data. And it is capturing not just their math test scores, but it is capturing all of their data, including their immigration status, including any concerns about mental health. Including video like Procborio. I mean, they're literally big brother telescreens, you know, spying into and COVID. You write about how the pandemic accelerated this use of technology, which means it accelerated the use of this data mining. Exactly. This was not technology that was developed in 2020 as a way of helping students through COVID. This was happening well before COVID. In fact, a lot of the research that Nolan and I have been doing, this is one of the things that I sort of feel naively surprised by as I'm doing some of this work is I'm looking at some of the pub dates of what we're looking into to, to learn more about this ourselves. It's 2017. It's 2018. It's 2019. It's not starting in 2020. COVID opened the doors for this to happen even more when the vast majority of our K through 12 and higher education moved to digital platforms, a door that was already opened. I don't know how far I can extend this metaphor became multiple doors opened, right? Became big, wide sliding glass doors. This stuff's with us. We talked a little bit, not jokingly, but metaphorically about addiction and the role that this plays in, in, in how these tech companies get people using gadgets and platforms and so forth. In higher ed now, we can't seem to remember how to teach or do anything without these half a dozen or more specific programs that are just ubiquitous. They're everywhere. It's just now part of the language of higher education. Absolutely. And it sets up, again, if we take a little bit of distance. So I'll give, I'll give two examples. And these are probably kind of the least offensive examples. And I think that's saying something. So there's a software called Turnitin, and Turnitin is a way for primarily higher education, but certainly not exclusively to higher education, for faculty to accept papers. Students turn their paper in through this program, which reads their paper and ostensibly checks for plagiarism. Okay, fine. I'm all for students not plagiarizing. I don't think students should be copying work, etc. Like, I don't have any problem with that. Here's what I think is a problem with Turnitin. We learned a lot of this from a scholar named Ben Williamson. He's working out of Scotland. He's an incredible scholar looking at tech information and the way tech is manipulating education. Turnitin sets up a relationship so that from the very first day of school, you, the teacher, and you, the student, you don't trust each other. 
if I start school with telling my students to turn their papers in by turn it in, and I'm told that it's a protective device so that I can preempt some plagiarism concerns, what I'm also telling my students is I don't trust you and you don't trust me. I'm assuming at the start of class that if I don't trust you, that you don't trust me. To not turn a paper in by turn it in, I might, as an instructor, I might get disappointed and my heart might hurt if I have a student that plagiarizes. But it sets up the first day of school as a relationship of trust building versus trust non-existent. It's policing versus teaching. It's turning it into a punitive exercise. I mean, look, we don't catch everything as teachers, as educators, as professors. But I'll tell you, I've read enough of papers in the last 25 years that you can usually sniff one out pretty quick and use it as an opportunity not to be punitive, but approach someone and say, what's happening here? Like, what led you to make that decision when all the resources were available? In other words, turn it in is just like another digital wall being put up between instructors and, and students that separates them instead of brings them together. Right. The second concern that I have with Turnitin is that this is a system that is reading student work and it is also looking for certain language, not just plagiarism. It's looking for words. Again, it's particularly higher education. So roughly 18 to 22 year olds, what kind of language they're using of their own, not their quotes or their paraphrases, but what language they're using of their own. And then that gets built into how stuff is marketed to them. So before they even know that they want or need something, before there's an actual demonstrated need for something, they're being fed their own language back to them to introduce and to construct need so that there's more stuff that then gets purchased. It's being used, their papers, their work, which also, of course, they are not being paid for, is being used to create marketing and advertising for future purchasing. The word insidious has come up multiple times here already today. And I'm, I mean, it's just, I, it's hard to find a more fitting term. And you mentioned earlier, if those are some of the lesser infraction type examples, we can only imagine the rest. Do you have another part to the series? And in fact, our listeners will make sure you're aware that both Allison Butler and Nolan Higdon are working on a series of these research articles. It's going to be turned into a larger project certainly a didactic one. So definitely stay tuned. We'll be updating you on that. And you can learn more at projectcensored.org. Allison Butler, you also have a follow-up to that, entering the resistance phase of surveillance education cycle, finding ways to protect privacy in schools. So let's unpack a little of that because we do talk about a lot of the challenges. We do deconstruct a lot of the problems. We are critical of a lot of the structures that we inhabit. But we also try to do more than pay lip service to what we can do about it. But you all are already turning your focus on, hey, we definitely understand the problem. But how good are we at fashioning solutions that keep up with the tech companies that are always seemingly ahead of us to co-op and turn our solutions back into our problem? I think it's really easy these days to be super cynical. And what I would encourage us to be is more skeptical than cynical. Skeptical implies that things are a little problematic and there's potentially ways out of it. I think one of the advantages of critical media literacy, because it's looking at the behind the scenes, because it's looking at the structures of power, we can use that to start to work, to push back this tide. It's not that surveillance technology is going to go away. It's not that suddenly we're all going to be handwriting papers or maybe typewriting them, 
but how can we maneuver through them a little bit more responsibly? So one way to fight back, for example, in schools, K through 12 or higher education is provide your faculty like administrators are signing contracts with these software and hardware companies. Provide your faculty transparent information about what these hardware and software companies are doing. I mean, like on a school wide level, on a university wide level, give information, work with our students especially our minors, not that anybody over 18 isn't subject to this as well, but especially minors. Let's start with saying, okay, we do need to use this technology, but you're going to only do stuff that is school-related on this school-related system. So one thing that we're also talking about, particularly with students, particularly with minor students, those under the age of 18, is if your school is requiring you to use this hardware or this software, think about the difference between your personal technology and your school technology. So do your school assignments on the school computer because that's what you're required to do, but don't use your personal technology. So for example, any student, anybody that plugs, say, their personal smartphone into a computer, maybe to charge it or to download something or whatever, that opens the door. And that student who's under the age of 18 has now passively given away all of their data and the company has their information now. Keep your personal stuff separate from your professional stuff. Don't let those two mix. Your digital footprint is already out there, particularly if you have a smartphone. Your stuff is out there. But if you can keep those somewhat separate, you might be able to give away less data. You might be able to slow those floodgates down, to dam that up a little bit, keeping that separate. If these companies are publicly saying that the only thing they're doing is making grading more convenient for teachers, then fine. Just give them grading. Don't give them your whole self. Those are very, very significant points, and especially with COVID as the cover justification, so many educators feel just beholden. They feel like they don't know how to teach without them in some cases at this point, especially younger teachers. This is their introduction to that world. And those of us that have been doing it for a couple of decades are like, I just want to talk to people in a room, not a chat room, but a real room and see real faces, not just FaceTime or Facebook. Allison Butler, you are also co-author of a book coming out called The Media and Me. It's a critical media literacy guide to young people. Several of us at Project Censored are co-authors with you on that, including Andy Lee Roth, Ben Boynton, Nolan Higdon, myself, you, many others, Kate Horgan. You can learn more at censoredpress.org. Can you tell us a little bit about that angle, teaching critical media literacy to young people? It's one thing that we don't have curriculum that teaches this broadly, and, and it's another problem that we have that Media Literacy Week is totally hijacked by corporate tech interests. But this book is specifically looking at targeting, if that's the right word, the very people that may be more vulnerable and susceptible to what's going on with digital media because we're groomed more and more to see young people as so-called digital natives and that's just the air that they breathe. But that doesn't necessarily mean that they understand what's happening to them and it seems actually very unethical that we don't have educational curricula in place to really help people understand decisions that are being made for them at such an early age. Allison Butler. 
media literacy has been talking about advocating for and focusing on and centering students for so long. And I think that's what this book does is it absolutely centers the young people because it's written for them. And it is written by a bunch of grownups, except we have some younger authors. We have some undergraduate students who co-authored this and are named co-authors. And our first readers, our first rough draft readers were teenagers. So we wanted to make sure that we did right by them and told stories about their lives that they approved. I think it speaks to what I was saying before about not moving into cynicism, but sort of staying within a healthy skepticism. It is the oxygen that young people breathe. We open the book with a metaphor of a watch that we all know how to tell time, but we don't necessarily know how that timepiece works. We have to take it apart to understand the sort of guts of time telling. I would say the same thing in my own experience. I drive my car to and from work every day. I don't know how my car works, but it does. It goes forward and it takes the turns that I need. I am ignorant of how the car works. I am kind of, you know, going to maybe be a little bit of a hypocrite here and be like, I'm okay with that. I'm not so okay with that when it comes to our media. It is so very much a part of our lives. It is the oxygen we breathe. We deserve to know more about it. And I think specifically, young people deserve to know more about it. So this is a text written specifically for and specifically to young people to give them both the information, but also not the doom and gloom. There are a lot of resources in this text. There's a lot of ways for young people to make steps so that they understand their media relationship more multidimensionally. And again, as I said at the outset, we're never telling anybody to turn their devices off. We're never telling anybody to quit anything. We're not media bashers. We want ourselves to have a multidimensional understanding of what it is that we work with every day. The thing about media and me specifically that I think is is additionally noteworthy, not just its focus on 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 solutions and giving people tools to navigate media. It talks with young people in its tenor and it looks up to young people in its approach. It doesn't have a paternalistic like you just said, it's not a finger-wagging book. It's, hey, we're all in this together, too. Let's talk about it. And I think that that's a really powerful way to approach education that actually kind of loops back to what you were saying about things like Turn It In. I think the tenor of the text is a very mutual one, and it's very open and approachable that we're not coming at people like experts telling them what for, but it's more, we're with you. We all need to learn together. And I think one of the great things about when you and I talk about we as the authors of this book, and you mentioned so many of them, is we are a variety of people. We are traditional academics. We're activists. We're active students. We are men, women. We are across genders. We are across races. We are across ages. We are across geographies. We are across abilities. We as a group worked really hard to make sure that there were representations from so many different parts so that we're not just telling one story because so much of our corporate media tells the story from the position of the upper class, at least publicly heterosexual, white male. And that's not the only person in this country. That is not the only person on this planet. And so this collective of authors worked really hard to make sure that we cut across as many identity projects as we could so that we could speak to and speak with as many young readers as we could.
That is right. Absolutely. Allison Butler. And uh, the book we were just talking about will be out later this fall. It's The Media and Me, A Guide to Critical Media Literacy for Young People. You can learn more at censoredpress.org. And the official authors are called Project Censored and the Media Revolution Collective, because indeed, it is a diverse collective, as Allison Butler just noted. We're going to take another quick break, but we want to come back for a few more minutes with our guest, Allison Butler, to talk about the biggest critical media literacy conference going on the West Coast in the United States. That's coming up October 21, 2, and 3. We'll be back after this brief break. Stay with us. Welcome back to the Project Censored Show. I'm your host, Mickey Huff. Today on the program, we've been discussing all things critical media literacy, and we are very, very happy to continue with our special guest, Dr. Allison Butler, Senior Lecturer, Director of Undergraduate Advising and Director of Media Literacy Certificate Program in the Department of Communications at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. She's also Vice President of the Media Freedom Foundation, author of numerous books and articles on all things about critical media literacy, including The Media and Me that we just discussed. Allison Butler, you're also one of the driving forces behind the Critical Media Literacy Conference of the Americas, which is now in its third year. It is to be held in Oakland, California, October 21, 22, 23, that's actually in advance of Media Literacy Week. So in some ways, we're, we're <laughs> predicting the countermeasures that may need to be taken the weekend before that all begins. You're one of the organizers. Can you tell us about this conference, particularly the theme and what many of us who really care about and teach about critical media literacy will be talking about this weekend in Oakland? I'm so excited about this conference. As you said, it's the third year of the conference. It's going to be our first year being back in person. We did the first two years of this iteration of the conference digitally due to COVID. So I'm super excited to be able to safely travel to Oakland again and to be with my good friends and colleagues who I haven't seen in person in three years. This is a great conference. It is, as you said, the Critical Media Literacy Conference of the Americas. It's not just North America. We've got participation from North America, including the United States and Canada, South America, Central America. It's a multilingual conference. It'll be in English, Spanish, and Portuguese. There is a remote element to it. We will have some hybrid options available, although we are trying to do most of the conference in person. We don't mean to be ignorant of people's ability to travel, both financially as well as in terms of their own personal health, but we are trying to be very cognizant of the technology that is available to us, as well as the labor that is available to us. 
This is a grassroots conference. We don't have significant funding. It is free registration for all, which means that it is free labor. And so we're trying also to really consider very carefully the behind the scenes labor that goes into a hybrid or a digital conference. This year's theme is largely about eco-media and looking at critical media literacy as a way of understanding the environment and the world that we live in. And I think similar to surveillance technologies, critical media literacy is really poised to address questions of climate change, questions of the environment, and the way in which we are treating the planet, the only planet on which we live. So we're going to be having a lot of presentations that are focused on critical media literacy in the classroom, critical media literacy in community activism, with a very special focus on eco-media literacy. You can see more information at the Critical Media Project, criticalmediaproject.org. We'll definitely link it to the show here. There are star-studded folks here. We've got everybody from students to some of the top names in the field academically of critical media literacy all coming together to talk with one another and to really raise awareness around the significance of critical media literacy and this type of education. We have, for example, a panel all about the media and me where the authors are getting together to talk about that work. Of course, Project Censored will be there to talk about the global crackdown on freedom of expression and censorship. And I have the honor of hosting a plenary with Max Alvarez of The Real News Network, Minar Adley of Mint Press News, Robin Anderson, Fordham, also writing for FAIR and Project Censored, as well as the environmental journalist Eduardo Garcia who writes a lot about the importance of what's wrong environment, especially about fossil fuel industry, but you don't really see a lot of his work in the corporate press. And so that's going to be one of the interesting features of that conference as well. Again, you can go to projectcensor.org for more and get the link there. Allison Butler, we're going to wrap up this segment, so I wanted to just open it up to you. What message do you want to leave with folks about the work that you do and the things that you're hoping to achieve? And one of the things about this conference that I think is really special is that we've also got carved into it specifically space for people to just talk about things that they're interested in talking about. We've got scheduled salons. Some of them have themes. Some of them are just kind of open space. There's going to be sections of this convention center where it's just little nooks and crannies of rooms with comfy chairs. And so that's, I think, to answer your question, I'll start with that by saying one of the things that's really important to me and is really challenging in a good way is in some ways, there doesn't need to be anything super surprising about critical media literacy. It's the world that we live in. It's the questions that we ask. It's, it's the air that we breathe. It's what surrounds us. And I want to think of it as a democratic space, a small d democratic space that is about communication, that is about dialogue, that is learning from each other and our different experiences. And I certainly have my opinions about the dangers of corporate media. And I think I just made pretty clear what my opinion probably is by using the word danger. I am unequivocally opposed to the surveillance technologies in education. I find them incredibly dangerous. I think they are absolutely harming education. But at the same time, I recognize that we probably couldn't have gotten through COVID without them to some extent, that I've seen several students talk about how they have problems with the surveillance part of it, but the technology part of it actually enabled them to be able to go to school, to get an education. Critical media literacy is not a black and white issue. It is multi-dimensional we are considering many things 
You can learn more at criticalmediaproject.org. Our guest for today has been Allison Butler, Senior Lecturer, Director of Undergrad Advising, and the Director of the Media Literacy Certificate Program in the Department of Communication at the University of Amherst. And Allison Butler wears so many other hats. Allison, anything you want to share with people about how they can learn more about your work or follow more of the amazing things that you do? I'm pretty easily found at the UMass Amherst website. Send me an email. Let me know what you want to talk about. I love it, you know, when when we write stuff and we put it out there and people send us information from their own hometowns, from the things that are happening on the community level. Love learning about that stuff. So send it along. We'll try and incorporate it in our future work. Fantastic. Allison Butler, thanks so much for joining us on the Project Censored Show today. And more importantly, thanks so much for all the important work you do around critical media literacy education. It's been an honor. Thank you. Again, thanks to Dr. Allison Butler for joining us. And up next, to round out the Project Censored show, we have her co-author, Dr. Nolan Higdon. He co-authored several of the articles we just spoke about. And of course, Nolan Higdon is no stranger to the Project Censored audience. We'll be discussing his latest piece that we have at the Project Censored site. The military-industrial complex wants you to be more media illiterate. We'll talk about the continued hijacking of media literacy on the Project Censored show after this brief musical break. Stay with us. Welcome back to the final segment of today's Project Censored show. In this segment, we are going to continue our conversation about critical media literacy and critical media literacy education. We were just speaking with Allison Butler about many things regarding critical media literacy education, teacher training, as well as corporate media literacy and the co-option or co-optation of media literacy by big tech and other corporate entities. Well, in our conversation, we brought up that even NATO wants to get into the game of co-option and working with media literacy organizations. And our guest right now is an expert on critical media literacy who's published about this very issue. Dr. Nolan Higdon, no stranger to the program, is an author and university lecturer at Merrill College and the Education Department at University of California, Santa Cruz. He's also the founding member of the Critical Media Literacy Conference of the Americas that's coming up October 21, 2, and 3, He's the author of The Anatomy of Fake News, A Critical News Literacy Education. Nolan Higdon, welcome back to the program. What's up, Mickey and Project Censored Universe? Happy to be back on the show. Nolan, it's great to have you here to celebrate our Critical Media Literacy Week. And the Conference of the Americas is coming up right around the corner here. This show will air October 21 at KPFA. There'll be more information after the event online. You can go to projectcensored.org or the Critical Media Project. And I was just talking to your co-author and our colleague, Allison Butler, 
we came across the topic of hijacking, of co-option. And just recently, you and I were talking about a phenomenon where we actually had to rub our eyes a moment because none other than the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, or NATO, seems to be working its way into the mainstream of the media literacy world through the Center for Media Literacy. So let's talk about this. There's an awful lot to talk about in here, and I know it's going to dovetail into a conversation about NewsGuard as well. But Nolan Higdon, tell us about your latest piece on how the military-industrial complex wants you to be more media illiterate. I've noticed this phenomenon over the last couple of years. So, so much of the attention has in the media literacy world has been on the, the weaponization of the, the fake news epithet and this moral panic over fake news. Many of us, myself included, argued that the real way to address the problems with fake news is to have a more media literate culture. But at the same time, folks were talking about fake news. We also saw this weaponization of media literacy. We saw, you know, Steve Bannon argue that what, you know, Breitbart was doing was media literacy. We've seen corporate America, many media corporations try and claim that they want to get into the classroom to make students more media literate. And we've seen the government as well, with like the federal government's disinformation board, which the Department of Homeland Security tried to launch earlier this year and then curtailed. We saw efforts by the government to try and determine what media literacy was. And now we, we see NATO doing it as well. And so we're kind of in this interesting situation where we want to advocate for media literacy, but we want to separate the media literacy we're talking about from these other actors who clearly have a long history of creating and peddling false information. It seems like this is coming out of an effort to deal with information around Russia, Ukraine. What are some ways that people who consume news, regular citizens here, how how can they sniff this out? How can they learn to tell the difference between these kinds of efforts that seem to have an extraordinary bias and other ones that want to put individuals in the driver's seat of their own critical thinking? One of the the simplest ways is is to look at who's behind the media literacy content. I mean, if you start seeing media corporations or organizations that have conflicts of interest, such as, you know, ideologically driven organizations like a political party or um, a government, including the United States government. If they're behind the content that's being created, their bias and interests are going to be in the content. Closely related, a lot of really critical content, the type of content that I think students need, looks at the production process. It looks at who is creating media, who is creating media literacy content. And how are their biases reflected in that content? And so if you have a a media literacy that does not look at the production process, then it's probably one that's trying to avoid difficult questions like how might Facebook, the way the way they create their platform or create their media literacy content influence what's ultimately in the classroom. So in the piece here, too, you are quoting from some of the articles and the material that are being used here. And again, NATO has a long history working with the Atlantic Council as sort of a PR arm, and Atlantic Council is already listed at Meta and Facebook as a, quote, fact checker. So these kinds of groups have already infiltrated big tech. And in fact, you're right to point out in the piece what we've discussed before, and that's that there's really not that much separation here between the military-industrial complex, the national security state, and big tech in general. Big tech emerged from and continues to serve the same military-industrial complex going back to DARPA and post-World War II. One of the pieces of language here that struck me was that the report calls on NATO to, quote, nurture grassroots efforts in terms of of information or fighting information, which actually sounds more like astroturfing. Can you talk a little about what that means? This is one of the most interesting parts of the study. And we should should be very clear that that NATO funded the Center for Media Literacy, which Tessa Jules leads to do this study. And the study was essentially 
asking Joel's, you know, what would a media literacy curriculum that reflected the values of NATO look like and how could we get it implemented to the largest audience possible? And so that's essentially what Joel's is writing about in the the article. And and she's basically, you know, basically she's directly saying that the content should reflect the values of NATO. And she describes how they need to use corporations, media, lobbying groups, et cetera, to get this stuff in front of educators, schools, and other people so they will implement it. And that sounds just basically like astroturfing. You create this illusion that there's this mass movement or desire for NATO values around the world in the form of media literacy curriculum, convince people that that's the case, and then they'll adopt this stuff in the classroom. It's one of those interesting things where a lot of times you can kind of read the tea leaves and pick up what's going on behind the scenes. But here in this report, she lays out directly that process. Which is actually remarkable because it's right out in the open if you just read it. It's not hidden. It's, it's a form of, quote, public diplomacy. That's a term that's, you know, euphemism for propaganda. It's public diplomacy when we do it. It's fake news when other countries do it. You also, of course, have talked a lot about and of course, again, in this article, talked about the NewsGuard browser extension known as an Internet Trust tool. Tell us what's going on with NewsGuard and the advisory board and, and why is that effort as problematic as the one we've just been talking about? In some ways, at least in the, the report from the Center for Media Literacy, it was very clear that they were trying to serve NATO and that they were giving a blueprint for how to spread NATO's influence around the world through media literacy. NewsGuard was a little more opaque. Essentially, NewsGuard offers a browser extension which can rate the veracity of news websites for students, and they market it as something educators can use in the classroom. There's some very serious problems with what NewsGuard's doing. Number one, their rating process seems to be just incoherent. It doesn't, it doesn't make sense, and it clearly reflects an ideological bias. That's problem number one. Problem number two, for an organization that claims to be dedicated to determining the veracity of content, they have a lot of people on their board who are known for working in organizations that create and spread false information. So they have Tom Ridge, who served in the Department of Homeland Security, Michael Hayden, who worked at the CIA and NSA, Richard Stengel, who was at the U.S. State Department and actually openly advocated for the U.S. to spread more propaganda in his time there. These conflicts of interest you can see come out as the content that usually is rated false happens to have an ideological bias that is critical of the state and the power dynamics of the state. So recently, Consortium News um, has rightly raise alarm bells that they're being rated by NewsGuard as untrustworthy news outlet, but they've done, you know, robust, meaningful journalism for decades at this point. So that's part of the problem. And then to make the problem a little more complicated, they market themselves as an education tool. And we've seen like, you know, very powerful education unions, such as the American Federation of Teachers, adopt this thing in the classroom. But it's really the opposite of education. It's indoctrinating students to to look to a rating system to determine whether or not something is true or false versus teaching them with the tools to determine the veracity of information for themselves. And I, and I think that that anti-education or anti-educator feature of NewsGuard is really problematic. And I think that's why it's no surprise that Arne Duncan, who served as the Secretary of Education under Obama and, and was known when he was CEO of the Chicago schools for being anti-teacher union is part of NewsGuard's board as well, because it's really just anti-education in the way it operates. 
I'm very glad you pointed out the recent flap once again with Consortium News. PayPal earlier this year tried to freeze their accounts as well as Mint Press News and journalist Alan McLeod. And this is from October 13. NewsGuard is warning people about us. This is from Consortium News. Got the red mark warning where NewsGuard says they fail to adhere to several basic journalistic standards. Does Fox and CNN also have a, a red mark? No. This is pretty remarkable. And so the whole purpose here now is to control the narrative even around what is media literacy. And it sounds like we've really got our work cut out for us, Nolan Higdon. And in your work, Anatomy of Fake News, also in our book, Let's Agree to Disagree, we've talked at length about what those critical thinking tools are and talked a lot about how people can be more media literate. This Critical Media Literacy Conference of the Americas, October 21, 2, and 3. This show is airing October 21 in Berkeley. It'll air across the country after the conference, but there'll be ways you can find out more about it. Nolan Higdon, thanks for joining us on the Project Censored Show. Thank you so much, Mickey. You've been listening to the Project Censored Show on Pacifica Radio, established in 2010 by myself and Peter Phillips. I'm Mickey Huff, the executive producer and host of the program. Anthony Fest is our longtime senior producer. The Project Censored Show airs on roughly 50 stations around the United States from Maui to New York. To learn more about our work or find any of our previous archive programs, go to projectcensored.org. Please follow and like us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and be sure to subscribe to the official Project Censored show on your cell phone's podcast application. Please feel free to share your feedback about our work at projectcensored.org. And last but not least, thanks to you, our listeners, for tuning in. Stay well. We'll see you next time. Thinkable crimes perpetrated by the criminal minds political ties, habitualized alibis, skies and other guys, democracy, politics, and the apocalypse. Got the skies like an ominous. So the ocean burned bright with waves full of poison. Genocide wars fall for little poison. The weapons manufacture pay for why attacks on all the bridges and the levees and the mines collapsing. All the prisons build the capacity citizens. And the times for the master thief. Combine and conquer, seal the masterpiece. Open your eyes and realize what's happening. Time's running out the reach. All potential fame at the table, then you probably on the menu. We got that love of the brothers and us.